I am Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today, I'm joined by Shamika Ayers. Shamika is a author and Jill of all trades. She created and produced the Sugar Coma Festival, which was an experiential dessert tasting event based in Atlanta, which toured other U.S. cities. Shamika says that she was a self-professed sugar mama and had a totally reckless diet. Getting diagnosed with type 2 diabetes caused her to re-examine her overall relationship with food and her wellness habits. These days, she spends most of her time retooling recipes to lower the sugar quotient, educating herself about the virtues of mostly plant-based eating, keeping physically active, and evangelizing about reversing type 2 diabetes with small lifestyle changes. Hi, Shamika. Thank you for being here. Morning. So glad to be with you. So could you please introduce yourself to uh, listeners who do not know who you are? Well, I'm Shamika Ayers. I, at one point, was best known on a local, national, and global stage as the Broke Socialite about 10 or 12 years ago. I launched a blog at the precipice of lifestyle blogging called the Broke Socialite, and it was about living an austere uh, lifestyle. And I built a very strong community, and I do believe it was just through tips, tricks, ideas. At the time, our now-grown son was a middle schooler. So I was always looking for ways to save money. And um, the, the community that I built um, rallied around me when I took and elevated that notion as a, a, a social media. I hate the word influencer. I, I really do, but I don't know what else to call it. So, uh, At the time, I would have considered you a social media expert. You really, I mean, that's how I became to know you was like, you were just really agile and able to, to just really build. I mean, again, I hate saying brand, but you really built the socialite brand and then were able to, you know, turn it into monetized events faster than most people that I saw. Well, and at that time, and it really was out of necessity, the sugar coma concept came to be. Can you tell people what sugar coma was? Mm-hmm. So um, the concept itself was born because one Saturday night, my husband was saying, you know, we get so sick of sitting at home, tired of going to the same tired restaurants. What if there was like a, a pub crawl, but desserts? So, you know, we thought about it and it really didn't think of turning it into much of anything. Um, so I began doing. Um, by partnering with local chefs in Atlanta, pastry chefs uh, included, to bring dessert enthusiasts. As it turns out, and the irony in this all is I don't really have much of a sweet tooth. I remember (laughs) reading that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We didn't, I didn't have dessert growing up a lot. And just because neither of my parents had sweet teeth. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to partner those with sweet teeth with, and this was kind of the marketing piece with those um, mom and pop bakeries, um, pastry chefs, maybe those who were, you know, working out of, um, are they called cottage kitchens? Yeah. I mean, there, like no, there's all sorts. Kitchens. There's ghost kitchens. Yeah. There's, there's, so yeah, but you were really one of the first to like give pop-up 
cooks and and chefs in Atlanta, like a platform like that were like those mom and pops. And I mean, I, I know I discovered a lot of like pastry focused businesses just through, you know, your account and who you chose. Yeah, that was my goal because I knew that a lot of those folks were just so dynamic and not only just dynamic and good people, but they had wonderful products and offered, you know, just great desserts and stuff like that. So I, but then I also knew that they had shoestring budgets. So I used my social media platform to marry those two communities and then be a big mouth. Um, On my blog, I engaged other bloggers and again, just built this community of, you know, of, of good people. Um, who at the end of the day, I wanted to help and elevate. And that's where the sugar coma concept was born. Um, We did the hop on a tour bus or shuttle bus concept um, a few times before I realized I really didn't like that um, much at all, especially during the uh, uh, Georgia summers. Um, Mm -hmm. So then I converted that into a one-stop shop uh, festival model, uh, kind of a graze environment where folks could do tastings and purchase merch and things like that with a DJ. And I mean, you, I mean, that was just one of the things that you did. I mean, you also had a podcast or kind of a, I a did. show. I forgot about Gas that. Swoon Faint mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. on Blog Talk Radio. And I you do. also had one that was Unwicked, the modern stepmom. I was a stepmom too. And I think we also connected on that. At the yes, time. we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you also, you also started other types of local events. Like before Sugar Coma, it was lavish. Mm-hmm. And you spoke at Blog Her, which was like really, like if you were a woman and you were a blogger, it was like, really one of the premier events. It was like giving a TED talk at the time for bloggers, was, you know? Yeah. And it was kind of, I was the antithesis of the mommy blogger, right? I think, remember the mommy blogger was really hot right back then. Oh yeah. And I didn't consider myself that. And I didn't even consider myself a lifestyle blogger. No one was calling us that at that time. And that was the reason for lavish to um, because most of the conferences were mommy blogger centric. I wanted to give us who were women trying to find and share our voices and our perspectives. I wanted to give us a safe place. And that really is how lavish was born. I, I got tired of spending five and $700 on registration and hotel rooms for a weekend when there really wasn't content. Um, there for me, even though I was a stepmom and a full-time stepmom at that Gareth lived with us. Um, I had the mom responsibilities, my blog station wagon and all over the football and everything. I I I remember I was really looking for an escape (laughs) 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 from, um, mom stuff. So that was the impetus for Lavish. I connected with some great bloggers like yourself. Um, I'm not going to start naming names because I'll surely forget someone that Mm -hmm. was when I was 12 years younger than I am now. But it was fantastic. A wonderful hotel hosted us. Um, We kind of had the who's who of folks in, you know, beauty, fashion, 
general lifestyle, food, all under one roof for a weekend. And um, I dare say it was successful. And, you know, I mean, that is aside from your voice, which has always been, I mean, no matter what you're doing, I think your voice is the common denominator for me. It's strength. And like we were talking earlier about how like it really does like seem to be a beacon for, or you are a beacon rather for authenticity. Can you just kind of go back to the beginning where you were born, where you were raised? Because I mean, that's another thing that you and I have connected on, um, which we'll get to later. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, One of the things that I'm proudest of is being a rural girl. I was born and raised uh, in Covington, Georgia, still have very deep, uh, ties and roots there. Um, our claim to fame at the time I was growing up was uh, In the Heat of the Night was filmed there. General Lee, uh, some of the Dukes of Hazard episodes were filmed there. Right now, I think it's The Vampire Diaries that's really <laughs> popular um, in The Walking Dead. It's come, become really a, a little TV town because it is sleepy and quaint. And I have one sister and we grew up on a, a, a dirt road next to my maternal grandparents and my mom's uh, younger sister lived next door. So we are very much a close family, um, had a wonderful education in that public school system. I'll put my public school education up against any private one um, any day. Uh, because I felt prepared uh, not only to leave and go to college, but to uh, go off and be successful. And ha- I definitely had all of the tools that I need needed. Um, so much so I love Covington that we are really considering uh, a move back out of the city because we have family land there and real estate is expensive. And why buy someone else's if I have my own? So we're really sorting through what our next steps are in terms of coasting into a simpler life and retirement. I'm not sure that I don't want to do a little gardening. Um, We're not sure that we don't want to do something together as an extended family because we have, I think about in our family, about a hundred acres out on the West side of Newton County, Georgia. So I'm really a hometown girl, still very close to You know, folks I grew up with, those are really, you know, my core group. That's my that's my core group of friends. And I really believe in make new friends, keep the old one is silver and the other gold. Um, And Covington and my family and my friends have really given given me the foundation for the great things that I have done and those that I aspire to do you know, in the future was when you were growing up, what, what kind of role did food play in your life and in your family's life? I know that your dad who goes by big fish is yes. a expert fisherman yes. um, who, you know, you have dangled an invite to his fish fries in front of me, as long as I've known you, you one of these yeah. days. So, I mean, I have to imagine having someone who's a fisherman. I mean, that puts food at the forefront. Mm-hmm. So uh, food was and still is everything uh, in my family on both sides of my parents' um, families and upbringings. And 
it's really um, funny because I was thinking about even though food is a central character in both sides of my upbringing, how it's approached is totally different. Right. Please elaborate. So on Big Fish's side, they don't eat a lot. They eat like birds. Right. So lots of I remember my granddaddy, Arthur, would go bank fishing at Jackson Lake. What's bank fishing? Just fishing on the bank? Yeah, just standing on the side, um, you know, standing on the bridge uh, fishing. And that is where um, my dad began his love of it. I really am not particularly a fisherwoman. My sister is because I'm afraid of the worms. Uh, <laughs> My daughter I'm loves to fish. Yeah, she is so, not afraid. Yeah, um, I have not gotten over that fear. So, um, so my my granddaddy Arthur would go and catch, get up at you know five o'clock in the morning. He was old as long as I was you know, from a kid. So he was retired. So he'd get up and go uh, fishing at five o'clock in the morning, come back. And my grandma Pinky would, you know, scale, clean the fish and fry them. And she would make a pot of grits, maybe um, some scrambled eggs and a pan of biscuits just in a circle pan. So there wasn't enough for you to eat much to my chagrin, four or five. (laughs) (laughs) everyone got one Mm -hmm. right so there was very much a portion you know portion control why what was it was it it economics was it It a health thing i think it was a health thing now that i think back on Mm -hmm. it because they weren't big people right um they Mm -hmm. were little uh, little people um you know and we all i think have a melting pot in terms of our backgrounds and ancestry and that sort of things, the big thing, but they were little, little folks. Mm-hmm. Now on my mom's side of the family, much healthier and much more stout and, um, you know, many more vats, right. Of macaroni and cheese and potato salad and excess. And uh, of all of those things, there were, um, where you said, do you have a, macaroni and cheese tooth i do i've never heard that phrase what does that mean well i mean i reckon i've coined it because you know people say they have a sweet tooth Mm -hmm. i have a macaroni and cheese tooth or a biscuit (laughs) tooth (laughs) because that's when when i crave i crave the savory right not so much yeah not so much the sweet and then i was thinking about in preparation for our chat this morning the distinct differences. So my paternal side of the family were gardeners, you know, all sorts of fresh vegetables and fruit and, and that sort of thing. My maternal f- folks were farm farmers more than gardeners. So they, you know, worked the land and um, there were pigs and chickens and those sorts of things. So, when you were growing up? Like you were seeing um, that? I remember, you know, probably late 70s, because I was mm-hmm. born in 73, probably late 70s, they phased out of because, because my grandfather and he also had a brother that kind of lived on our family compound were gentlemen farmers. Are you familiar with that term? I've heard that. But can you explain to So gentlemen farmers are 
uh, folks who have day jobs, but then they kind of after work come home and work work land, right? So um, mm-hmm. I think they were looking toward retirement and we're just kind of tired of it. And my mom's crew, the, that next generation, I mean, they had jobs and kids and um, other responsibilities. So they didn't seem to take an interest in, you know, picking up the, or continuing with the, the farming. And I get it. So I had I'd never really thought about until past couple of days, you know, just how differently we approached food. And then if I look at some of the pictures, my maternal grandfather was one of about eight, I think. And some of the most beautiful pictures, um, heirloom pictures that I have seen are of all, everyone around the dinner table you know, great aunts and uncles and their spouses and cousins, just beautiful black and white photos in my great grandmother's kitchen. Her name was um, Thornton. So we called her Ma Thornton. And on Sundays, and I remember this up until she passed, I think I was about eight or 10, everyone would come. So think of all of those siblings and all of their children, and then some grandchildren, three or four generations would congregate at this farmhouse around food. I love that. Yeah. And, you know, it is just, it was a wonder to, to reminisce on one of the things that we've talked about is if we do land back out there, I want to build our home because her home has been leveled. Um, long since right in that spot because it just speaks family and hospitality and it's blessed right with all that love absolutely Mm -hmm. absolutely Mm -hmm. so you know I'm I'm a country girl at heart I mean I've lived everywhere from Seattle to Miami you know with my corporate self um but my roots always always drive me back to Covington and your corporate self, your day job is you, you were like, oh, it's not, you know, <laughs> anything related to food. But you've yeah. always been like a powerhouse from what I can, you know. You know, my day job is my day job. Um, I and I don't know if you even remember this. I had retired from corporate. Instantly, your book. Yeah, that's right. Yes, I you wrote a book from, from corporate. I think mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and we decided that I wouldn't work. But then that's when I was doing sugar coma and, you know, writing a book and and stuff like that. So um, then Gareth's college happened. (laughs) And so we decided that, you know what, you know, I'm in my prime earning years. So, you know, let's be wise and take advantage of that. So, um, you know, I decided to go back into corporate. I just, I, promised myself that if if that opportunity came, that I would do so on my terms. And I have. And then sugar coma ended and Mm -hmm. broke. You've just the broke socialite. You know, you're not Mm -hmm. doing it anymore. Blogs anymore. Uh, Nobody. In a a traditional sense. Yes. I mean, I don't really I don't update Blissful Button anymore. I've moved to more of an aggregator for my articles. But um, why did you stop doing 
sugar coma and the broke socialite and all mm-hmm. of that? Was it because you were focusing more on on just, you know, earning so you could retire or was it um, something else? Well, it was more so demands on my time. Um, in 2009, my mom was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And at a certain point, we knew it was terminal. Um, it was very difficult to juggle being an entrepreneur, being the creator, right? And the janitor and the accountant and PR and, and, and. It was just overwhelming. Um, and I will be the first to share because I, you know, this is on me. You know, my, my marriage suffered. I didn't feel the best about myself. I was doing too much. Um, so we made a conscious decision as a family that I would focus on mom's care, um, whatever that looked like in managing that. And I would do it all over again if I had to. I don't regret one minute of it. I was at the top of my game. I and You were. Big things in terms of, you know, relationships, corporate opportunities were hitting me left and right. Um, But girl, I felt so suffocated. I just didn't feel good about a whole lot of it. And after my mom made her transition, I think the greatest gift that, that she left me was the ability for me to be able to look at myself in the mirror and know that I had done right by her, period. And you took care of your own mental health. I mean, that's something I feel like we've also connected on as our mm-hmm. as our friendship has grown mm-hmm. over the past, I don't even know how long, like 10 years yeah, or so, more years. than that. Yeah, 12 years or something, yeah, because yeah. he is 10. First, let's talk before we get to physical wellness, let's discuss mental wellness mm-hmm. and what that means to you. Mm-hmm. It's really funny. Um, I have a dynamic trainer. His name is Keondrick Lucius, and we call him Dooley. And he's, I've been with him for nearly seven years. Um, and I think that our sessions are, one-on-ones are, are used to disguise psychotherapy um, <laughs> sessions with each other. And you I, go early. What time do you I go? go? Early. I go at um, quarter of five uh, a.m. most mornings. Um, but he and I were having a conversation a couple of weeks ago how, about how your mental health and your physical health, they can't be separated one from the other. And I had a lot of junk. I've had a lot of junk mentally. And I don't remember at what point I made a conscious decision to get some talk therapy, which is set upon my foundation of faith. I had very closely two tragic losses. So my mother passed away in 2012, I think it was. I think in 2013, so my dearest girlfriend lived life out loud, dynamic person, wonderful professional, brilliant wife, mom, herself, right? Like we forget to name that she was a great person herself before she was a mama and a sister Mm -hmm. and a daughter and all of that. 
So probably a year and a half after mom passed, she went for a mammogram, my girlfriend, Trisha, and realized that she felt a little lump. Gosh, and about 18, about 18 months later, she passed away. And the beauty and the trauma in that was I sat there and watched her pass away. I'd never experienced that transition in my life. And it messed me up from a mental health perspective. I always thought that I could handle anything, but I nearly cracked up. I'd just kind of gotten over mom passing. And then this happened and, and speaking in terms of, you know, corporate and going back to work and that sort of thing. What Eric and I decided was since I was still trying to figure out my next after settling mom's estate, that we would serve Trisha's family. So I wouldn't go back to work. I would um, because Trisha's uh, widower is an educator and he taught chorus. So you really can't be out a lot, right? Um, mm-hmm. For them, they had three little kids. So I did, my full-time job was doing whatever she, he, they needed wow. for about 18 months. So, you know, I'd become so integrated and, and they in our lives that was just a tremendous loss because we thought that just like everything else that she was going to overcome that. But it, it messed me up mentally. And I'll be the first to say that it was very hard. Um, I first cloaked it with work, just became so, so busy um, in a new job and never took the time to grieve. Um, I lost friends as a result of that, because I just shut down, put the dressing of work on everything, didn't socialize. But then I, f- I came to a, a critical crossroads and I knew it was time for me to get some help. So I was able to talk some of this out, um, you know, definitely was supported by the friends that I had left, uh, present company included, whether you knew it or not. Um, I have an amazing uh, life partner and husband and Eric. He made me take care of me. And then I started working out. I started going to a local gym. Um, it's called Effect Fitness um, right here, you know, in the heart of the city. And that gym saved my life. It saved my life. Um, this kid... Dooley took an acute interest in not only me, and then there were others. There were probably about 10 of us working out in his, his garage on Piedmont Avenue. And I've grown with him. I have, when I started, I think I was maybe 280 pounds, right? After I came through all of this haze, I think I was on six or eight medications. My health was in shambles. All of the things that my mom had experienced that led, I believe, ultimately to her demise, her to her death, to breast cancer. I was starting to have all of those conditions, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, just generally overweight. You know, my relationship with food wasn't good. I'd 
gorge myself, uh, you know, and just and so on. Mental health wasn't the the greatest um, because I was trying to be in too many places and be so much to so so many. You know, home wasn't ideal um, because I just wasn't being fair to Eric. I was being very very selfish. And then in 2019. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, that you post like you, I mean, you are an active poster and like you'd been like off social media for a minute and then you posted that you were in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you want to talk about what happened? Definitely. So I just remember it was, it was June. So almost two years, almost two years ago, maybe like one week I was so thirsty. Like I just could not drink enough water. I'm a water drinker, but I was drinking like 40 ounces of water every two hours. Whoa. To wait, you know, hours when I was awake all day. I just couldn't quench my thirst. Well, then, because I am a country girl, I started with my self-diagnosis of, well, maybe my potassium is low. Maybe that's why I'm so thirsty. So I'll never forget like one f- weekend, like that Friday, I bought like a 12 pack of Gatorade and by Saturday afternoon, it was gone. So then I just, you know, I, f- I felt like even though I didn't feel my best, I knew my body enough to know that something was going on. So I called my doctor. Um, they told me, you know, just Hang, you know, well, didn't there didn't appear to be a need for me to go to urgent care or ER, just come in on Monday. On my way to the doctor's office, I drove myself because I was on my way to work afterwards. My vision became so blurry that I couldn't read the license plate of the car in front of me. Hadn't had any vision issues before. Got to my doctor's office. They um, drew my blood from my, did a finger prick. My A1C was 19. Normal is seven. My blood glucose reading was about 1300. Normal is, no normal fasting blood sugar is 140 or less. Right, 80 to 140, I think it is. If I'd waited, my doctor says, two more days, I would have been dead. I knew I was, you know, on the cusp of, of being diabetic, but really wasn't doing anything about it. Um, and this, and, and in terms of self care, I had to fire my primary care physician. Because I'd been diabetic for a long, or pre-diabetic for a long time, but it was not treated. Every clinician I encountered after I was hospitalized wondered why I had not engaged in some sort of oral therapy because my numbers, and they looked at my history, my numbers were so high. Um, this should have probably been, have been caught two or three years earlier. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm speaking with Shamika Ayers. Why do you think that you weren't, what, what, what played into that? That's kind of like, I mean, when I get my physical every year and, you know, I'm 
I'm also, I had gestational diabetes when mm-hmm. I was pregnant with my daughter mm-hmm. and it runs in my family. Um, and you know, I have to watch it. I'm mm-hmm. constantly watching it, which is something you've been very mm-hmm. supportive of, but I mean, like my doctor like almost harasses me about it. Why do you think yours wasn't paying attention? Yeah, um, and, and there's a big picture to this. I mean, I truly think that doctors are overworked. I, I know that they and group practices have quotas. Um, so I just think that I was another black woman with sugar, with the sugar. And I was just a number. I don't think that there was any empathy right? In terms of my case, because I was probably not going to be compliant. And why sh- should that provider waste her time over it? Because it's, it's, it takes time to fix this, right? So in her defense, I just think that, you know, her volume was so, so, so high that she didn't have the time. Um, and she'd been my primary care physician for well, since 2009, so almost 10 years, I was highly disappointed as clinician after clinician expressed their disappointment and have since made some, you know, other choices in terms of my care. But, you know, despite being overworked, I, I do think it was her responsibility to give me the best treatment options possible. And I don't recall having been given treatment options except you know lifestyle changes i mean i don't think that's acceptable so just yeah, that's, that's yeah, my opinion but i don't know what i know now it was not mm-hmm. it, it it wasn't and isn't um acceptable numbers don't lie right yeah, it's no, like it's like that's no. something we always say to my kid is like math is certain the data don't lie you know, the data does not lie. Yeah. But yeah. self-care and I mean, really can be if listeners are listening, firing that doctor that no longer works for you. Yeah. You know, I was and getting I can, shamed by mine about my BMI and whatever. And I'm just really muscular. Mm-hmm. And BMIs are based on 18 year old boys. Right. You know, which I am not one. Right. Um, right. But it was very interesting. I did fire mine and then they asked for a second chance and I gave it. To oh, them. wow. So I was like, your bedside manner is awful. Well, I mean, it's wonderful to have the opportunity mm-hmm. to sh- to have them sharpen the pencil as it relates to your health. Mm-hmm. What I took out of that experience, so I was inpatient, had a penthouse suite, I call it. Um, it was horrible <laughs> for three or four days. I left the ins- I left hot the hospital on 150 units of insulin a day injecting into my stomach. Insulin is so expensive, even with insurance. I knew I was too cool for all of that. (laughs) So I was given a recommendation um, for a practice here in the city and partnered with my nurse practitioner. As it turns out, I have a friend who is a chef. Her name is uh, Asada Reed. And she's also a certified diabetes educator. And when I was discharged, I had tremendous lows um, in terms of my blood sugar. Couldn't get my breakfast snack, lunch snack, dinner regimen down. And she really coached me through that. But one of the most important things that she instructed me to do was when you have your first appointment with your new provider, tell them that you are going to be their exceptional patient. 
you're going to do everything they tell you to do. You're going to go above and beyond. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I have to the extent that I was on insulin literally 59 days. And then we were able to taper me off. And I did a couple of oral, did uh, two orals and uh, an injection, a weekly injection. And that has changed my life. My care team comprised of the endocrinologist's office, my new PCP, Dooley, my trainer, my nutritionist. If you're not on my team and if you all can't work together, then I need to start cutting some folks. But we are all engaged in my wellness right now. One thing that my body needs and likes and really helps with the management of my blood sugars is exercise. I shouldn't go two days without being active and getting my heart rate up. And so that has helped me determine, you know, kind of what my baselines are. 140 is high for me for a fasting blood sugar. Um, and, and again, I almost died when it was. 1400 or whatever it was. So to, to be able to reverse this thing, um, right now, my no, last, said you almost went into a diabetic coma. Yes. So my last a a one C reading, I was 5.5. And so it, that number is, is actually medically considered without diabetes. That's what mine is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to keep it. Yeah. So I try to keep it there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, speaking of BMI, I try to tune out um, a lot of the diet culture, right? You know, every which way you turn, someone's trying to tell you what you should and shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, some medical professionals included. And I have kind of gotten to the place where I've figured out what my body needs and wants. Um, I still have some of the habits, you know, speaking of food, I haven't gotten any clinical support for it, but I know that I'm a food addict. So I really try to eat when I'm hungry, eat as best I can with, you know, eat what is nutrient dense, um, low glycemic um, and within, you know, certain portion control. But I freestyle too. If I want a cocktail, I'm having a cocktail. If I want a brownie, I'm having a brownie, but I do the work that it takes on the other side to be right. able to, you know, to veer a little bit from time to time. So and it's different for everyone. I mean, like is. we're not medical experts. This is just what has worked for her. That's I'm right. on my journey. Glad I'm trying right now intuitive eating, which yep. is basically what you're saying is like yep. really just listening to what my body is craving. Right. No food is good or bad. That's right. Um, You know, I I use a lot of Stop, Think, Chew, which I know you're a big fan of. Her food is just really amazing. But I mean, you have become kind of, it's been really interesting because in your wellness journey, your food, you've been really cooking a lot. And, um, (laughs) but even before the pandemic. Can't stop, think, chew. (laughs) Yes, I'm like, because then we don't have to think and we can just chew. I actually. And I got to get back on board with Julia. She uh, has her restaurant that oh. she's opening. She's opening a restaurant with Brash Coffee. Oh, that's so she awesome. is, yeah. But I, I mean, and she reduced in. her minimum, her maximum yeah, minimum. I that. Mm-hmm. So that's good. But um, mm-hmm. 
but I also get it through Fresh Harvest, which is mm -hmm. how I first found her. Mm -hmm. But um, you started cooking a lot of like low glycemic meals. Mm -hmm. I mean, I watched your feed transform from margaritas and queso, which you still do. I do. Balance. Yeah. Yeah. And I do too. And into like, you know, this is what a healthy meal looks like. This is what what kind of working out you need to be doing for health, mm -hmm. both physical and mental. Mm -hmm. um, for me, you have become someone that has evolved into that space. And something that we had discussed in a pre-call was that for the Black community, there's still so much shame mm -hmm. around diabetes and health. Can you talk more about that? You brought that up before. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I just feel like, well, it is except in a, a few exceptional cases, diabetes type two is a lifestyle disease and it can be reversed by refining your habits, by exercising, by being more deliberate in choices about nutrition. Um, so I didn't go from almost being in a, a diabetic coma two days from death literally, to now my numbers are under control. The last visit with my endocrinologist, she actually said, I don't want to talk to you about your numbers. Your numbers are great. I, I want to know what's going on. I need to figure <laughs> out what's going on in your, head, in your head when you're saying that you overeat or you, you eat until you know you're too, you're th that dopamine, right? Like, I don't deny myself things. That's where I'm going with this is if I want a drink, I'm going to have a drink, but then I may have two drinks. I have to figure a way to manage my portions. I've not lost a tremendous amount of weight, but I have gained a lot of muscle. I've become more lean. Uh, my endurance is amazing. I'm just trying to live. And I think that some folks in the African-American community think they're damned with the sugar, with diabetes. And that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. But it is important to find your care team, develop therapies, whether they be oral or injectables. And, they, and, and those were a part of my journey. And I'm not ashamed of that. You know, I want off of them and I'm getting off of them slowly but surely, but accept and and abide by whatever the pharmaceutical therapies are every day. You can't not take uh, medications. And that's another part of it is it's expensive to be a, a type two diabetic. Needles are expensive. Testing strips are expensive. These monitors, these, these continuous glucose monitors, which really helped me a lot to manage my numbers, are expensive. So, you know, there's some socioeconomic um, data that show, you know, folks can't afford. So they don't invest in themselves because they don't have the money to and I, and I thank God that we have great insurance and are in a position to buy the foods that I need. But, you know, some folks just aren't. So it's a double edged sword. I, I guess I should say that, which is why I'm not so critical about that piece of it and try to use my voice to influence someone who may be on the edge 
of not taking care of herself. You know, we talk about breast cancer. We wear the ribbons. We talk about heart disease, um, but we don't talk about how African-Americans have the highest rate of um, amputations because of not controlling the neuropathy and the other opathies, retinopathy, you know, it it affects your vision, you know, it affects your kidneys. So many things that can take a person downhill if they're not attuned and doing everything they should. Um, And I just don't think we talk about it enough. We talk, like I said, we talk about all of the other diseases, but just not this, because I think we think we're supposed to have it. And didn't you say like, you were like, even like you're so passionate about it. You were at one point even considering like doing a podcast. Yeah. yeah, And I'm still considering that because I I think that there is a a great intersection between clinical and lifestyle, Mm. right. That might be able to uh, be communicated in this format. That's a very good question. Um, I just, you know, am going to do it when I'm led. And that's really what it's boiled down to. I mean, I've done a lot of the, the legwork, a lot of the background work um, for it. Uh, but then, you know, I have to be true to myself, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't want, if I'm going to do this, I want to, I want to do it right, number one. And yeah. I don't want to be overwhelmed with it. And right now I would be. And I don't want it to affect my, the balance that's in my life right now. I'm just not willing to sacrifice that. So um, I'm eager, you know, to your point about folks, um, you know, asking backdoor questions. I'm eager to share my story. I'm not making any recommendations for anyone. All I can say on your social. I mean, yeah, I mean, all I can say is that I have, and am uh, living the life of a type two diabetic. Um, I hope to not to be able to have to call myself that um, here in about six months or so, but it can be done. This disease can be reversed. I'm doing it every single day. And, and you also are a huge Peloton user. Ooh, that's yes. a big, that's a big part of your life too, right? We intersect on that. I rode this morning before yes, this, I did uh, not. Chatted. I did not. I, I've been bad this week. That's um, not right. Yeah, I know. My, the woman I work out with, I do like Megaformer Legree, which is mm-hmm. like the best workout ever. It actually is replacing Peloton for my number one workout love. She's out of town this week. So I am so out. Resting. I'm off. Yeah. <laughs> But I actually, um, I spend as a supplement to what I do with my trainer and my group class and my group class is a hit class. And I probably mm-hmm. do that three or four times a week, spend a couple of days, take a couple of days to rest because at my age, that's important. Rest is just as critical as being active altogether. Something we had also discussed in in our pre-call was I had brought up Black Nutritionist, that Mm -hmm. Instagram handle Mm -hmm. that I follow as well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the things she talks about are decolonizing your plate and how, like, for instance, like my family, we're from Mexico, Mm -hmm. like, you know, rice, black beans, maduros, Mm -hmm. like uh, plantains, like that's part of our, that's part of what we eat. Sure. Um, And she's really, I think she 
is trying to like demystify the shame mm-hmm. in a lot of these native cuisines, but that we are all, you know, coming from since Atlanta is such a melting pot and the world mm-hmm. is such a melting pot. Can you talk about that in your health journey? I mean, because your food is not all like brown rice, no. you know, steamed salmon and steamed broccoli with like a sprinkle of salt. Yeah, know? no. There's flavor. Um, you know, and I'm true to my heritage. I'm true true to my community and what I choose um, to consume is in terms of, of meals. And um, I just don't eat a lot of it. And I don't think that it is, I don't think what I eat is colonizer's food. She'd probably say so, but I have to watch she my would. blood sugars. <laughs> she yeah. Would. Yeah. <laughs> I, ha- I have to keep my numbers where they are, but you know, I don't eat badly at all. And I don't mm-hmm. call what I eat any particular thing, right? It's just my food. And when I was um, more, when I was engaged with the meal prep service, it was a little bit of everything. I mean, there what do you were, mean when you were engaged, when you were doing those when meal I was preps? Doing, yeah. When I was with mm-hmm. Julia. Yeah. That's what I want to, that's what I do want to start talking about is that you were, so were you preparing foods with her? No. Oh, you mean, no, you, I mean just when getting her, okay, getting, getting her stuff. But yeah. you were mm-hmm. doing, I remember you were. I was. You were doing meal prep. I do want to talk about you cooking um, mm-hmm. for the public, uh, your friends. But um, but you were at one point, and, and that was what I found so cool about you, is like yet another layer to the Shamika <laughs> onion. Was that Jill of all trades, Jill of nothing. Of, exactly. <laughs> that you started doing, now I know where the name came from, Miss Pinky's um, seafood casserole. Was it a casserole or was it a well, lasagna? A, I can't remember. And, well, depends on how you take your mac and cheese. I like mine in a, you know, in a casserole kind right. of format. So, okay. yeah. So you started I, selling food. Yeah, I did kind of like a pot on a pop up basis. So I take a portion of the really all of the net proceeds and donate to food ministries. And I've done that throughout the pandemic. Um, so I took my grandmother's love of seafood and her uh, macaroni and cheese recipe. Um, and then I married that with another aunt. So and, and just came up with this casserole. And it's just, um, you know, a small pan feeds four for what or one greedy person <laughs> and started peddling it to my friends. And, you know, it was a way for me to share my love of hospitality and food and, and feeding people, um, and then taking those proceeds and giving to those who are less fortunate. And, um, our friend Tammy Hardiman, um, and ignited the, or maybe ignited is not even the right word. Like I felt convicted, um, of all the work that, that she did with her bake sales for folks who are food insecure. And so that is a cause that is near and dear to my heart because, you know, here I am just living a great life, usually being greedy and so many are without. So um, I try to do my part um, there. And so um, you taking the funds from the, the mac and cheese sales is, is how I achieve that. 
And also then you started doing smoked pineapple margaritas, which were a hit. Mm-hmm. And you have to be uh, like a follower or a friend to be mm-hmm. able to buy these. Mm. Yeah. It's very, I mean... select, very select. Very <laughs> select. <laughs> yeah, because it's not. And I'm very careful to remind folks like this ain't no business. This is just <laughs> I'm doing this. Right. So if you want to support and help me, uh, you know, help some folks who may not be as fortunate as we are, then woo, here it is. I mean, but it, is, it is not anything that I do regularly. Um, last summer, because we were all shut down, I did porch pickups. So you just, you know, and, and it was mostly friends, friends mm-hmm. that I know and a few social media friends who I've grown to know. And you could come by and pick it up off my porch and I wave <laughs> to you from the screen, other side of the screen. But that was really, I think, helpful to me um, from a social perspective because it really got me through last summer's portion of the pandemic. Um, I was bec- becoming stir crazy. So, you know, got to see some of my favorite people and help other folks along the way. And last summer, you also achieved a personal goal of mine. You had a you were quoted and had a recipe with Miss Nicole Taylor in The New York Times. My favorite. Um, can you talk about that recipe and the article? Sure. So Nicole reached out to me based on an article that she was uh, writing for The New York Times. And Nicole's the- a food writer who was... Yes. Um, actually my editor at Thrillist and Mm -hmm. an amazing person and journalist. If you Mm -hmm. don't know, she's food culturalist on social. Yeah, she is just, uh, I get chills when I think about her. She just has it all together. Um, But she is an amazing person. So just, I met Nicole on social, right? And uh, we hit it off, both country girls. She's originally from Athens um, before she moved to New York. Um, so she was charged with writing a piece last uh, late summer, early fall about um, historically black colleges and our homecoming culture. She and I are products of HBCUs. She, Clark Atlanta University and myself, Florida A&M University. So um, knowing that I love to entertain, um, I had a you know, she gave me a chance to share my memories of of homecoming as an undergrad. And then the notion was, since we couldn't tailgate, what would we bring to a tailgate if um, we had those homecoming experiences? So I created, because I absolutely love Uncle Nearest, which is, are you familiar with Uncle Nearest? From the article. Yeah. From the article. um, Uncle Nearest worked for Jack Daniels. And Jack Daniels's family, I believe, underwrote financially Uncle Nearest's family ability, family's ability to create this bourbon. And they have a wonderful leader in, in, so in Fawn Weaver. And then one of Uncle Nearest's descendants, and Uncle Nearest is a black man. Mm-hmm. One of Uncle Nearest's descendants is very involved in the business right now. So long and short of it, I use that as a base, um, some citrus. It says that the article said that, uh, that uncle nearest taught Jack Daniels how to distill. You got it. That's, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
so I use that to basically make a bourbon slushy. So nice. that was my contribution to that story. And if you don't know a lot about Uncle Nearest and, and the CEO, she has a dynamic story. She's she is a badass. Absolutely love her. And we're actually going to go up on Juneteenth, June 19th, because um, Uncle Nearest is reopening their distillery post pandemic for tours. Nice. Again. What a nice, what a nice activity for Juneteenth. And can you explain to what Juneteenth is if people don't know? So Juneteenth commemorates when slaves in Texas, I believe, got the news that they were free. And so it became a celebratory um, holiday in our community. Um, it is, you, you're, we are seeing more prevalent, more prevalence in the celebrations. And I'll be honest, I wrote a bunch of great articles last year for the New York Times with with because there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, classic foods like the red punch. That's right. right. That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. So I am a student um, of Juneteenth just as much as the average Joe might be, um, because my friends in Louisiana, Texas, because, of course, Texas is where is, you know, the crux of of Juneteenth began friends out West have celebrated it, you know, since being children. And I'm ashamed to say that I don't think I knew what Juneteenth was until probably about three or five years ago. Well, I didn't grow. I mean, like people, people expect because both my parents were born and raised in Mexico that like we did Dia de los Muertos, but we Mm -hmm. never, we never did it. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't until I was older. People always assume that I'm going and like mm-hmm. doing all, and I'm like, well, it was just not something that we did. So don't yeah. be ashamed. Yeah. Same, We're same all on a journey. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are. And the older I become, the le- the more forgiving I am of myself for not knowing thus and so. I just take the opportunity to become more engaged, you know, and to surround myself with you know, a variety of, of folks who are like-minded, um, and it keeps my stress down. That's what I appreciate most about our friendship is our connection over good food and whether we're sitting in, you know, a, a, a fine dining spot. Where was the place we went that I asked you about? Miller Union. Miller Union. I think that was one of our first meals. Yeah, that was one of our first dinners. Mm -hmm. Um, or, and you didn't talk about this. I'm surprised. Oh my gosh. Yes. I I didn't have, I kept looking for an end to put the biscuit story and I couldn't because that was another thing. We ate them. Yes. No, because I grew up, I didn't grow up because I went to Oxford of Emory, which is in Covington. (laughs) You and I had connected just about Covington because Mm -hmm. Covington is a special place. And you talk about all of the, the land. And I mean, I got drunk in a lot of those fields late at night. As as a college student, but but you took me back to Covington for the first time since I think I had left <laughs> for school. But it was a food related trip. I'm going to talk about this. Um, I I was, but then I didn't I didn't get to it because it has to flow. Okay, so so you took me. I don't even remember how it came about. Were you there so, and I commented? So I dragged you out there because I felt that as someone who regionally was advising folks on what's good and what they what they ought to be eating 
did they need to know about these biscuits? And they did. So, and I don't know that you ever got around to writing about them. And, and I even think you were expecting at the time. Was How old is Z? Seven? She's going to be 10. What? It She's going to be 10 in December. Mm-hmm. No, it was post. It was post yeah, Z was being post. born. Yeah. At any rate. No, I think I did write about it for Creative Living. Did you? Mm-hmm. I think I did do an article for. Because last summer they were named the best biscuit in Atlanta. By who? Uh uh-uh. uh. I don't know. You know how they do these different ones? Yes, different... everyone has a list. And, and what's was, the name I... of the place so people know? Mamie's Kitchen. Now, there, I believe, are three or four locations. But the original fam, the, the original locations that remain family owned, that's it, because they, they're family owned, that remain family owned are on Evans Mill Road. In Lithonia, Georgia, which is off Interstate 20. And then the other is in Covington, but it's on Brown Bridge Road, located off of the Crowell Road exit off of Interstate 20. And Black women are back there making those biscuits. Mm-hmm. So that's They're good. And that, I also was so impressed by your restraint because when I went there, I was like, I want one of this and one of this because like cafeteria style, but like the hot trays. And you're like, no, I just come for the biscuit. You were like very, yeah, you were like I very. Meat, because Mamie's, Mamie's is actually a meat and three type yes. place. You remember? Mm-hmm, so you can get all sorts of meat. So I think I got like a salmon croquette and um, maybe like beef tenderloin and gravy because I surely, I remember having some to bring home yes, and I don't leftovers and yeah yeah and I don't um go there as much as I want to because it's you know that again I have to deny myself some things but um occasionally now I probably about once a quarter I'll have I think that's one. I think that's solid that's fair yeah, yeah. like yeah. I have nachos once a quarter yeah does it for me <laughs> so the, but these biscuits are I mean just full of lard they're so good. And they're a real Southern style biscuit. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a biscuit snob. Same. If your biscuit is tall and cuts the roof of my mouth, <laughs> no bueno. <laughs> and and then just if people want to keep up with you, mm-hmm. how can they keep up with you? And, and if you want to follow her, she's actually on Family Feud. It just dropped. Oh, and yeah. She totally like wows Steve Harvey. Oh you with the gift of gab. You were like, let me hook you literally with my fish story. <laughs> I love he he is amazing. I mean, he is Zaddy. I mean, he is my boyfriend. He, I mean, we just had such a great time. This is what I'll say about Family Feud is that it was a dynamic experience. It was a bucket list uh, experience for my family and me. And if you have ever wanted to audition, you should. Because there is no reason why we should have been chosen, except for we just were ourselves. So we had a blast. And, and if people do want to follow you, how can they find you? You can find me on Instagram at the broke socialite. She has a lot of very strong opinions and she will st- set you straight some days when you did not know you needed to be set straight. Um, Living my and- authentic life. And I love that about you. And that is why we are still friends. That and the fact that we're both Leos. Yes. 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 Almost time to prepare. 
oh my gosh well thank you shamika for being here i really appreciate you helping me launch this podcast and i hope that people find your story inspirational uh, because i know i do thank you love you peace peace that's this week's episode thank you for joining me and thank you to shamika for opening up about her journey with food you can follow her on social as the broke socialite if you want to keep up with me You can find me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds on Instagram and Twitter. Please don't forget to rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find me. Next week, I'm joined by Besha Rodell. Besha is a critic and columnist for the New York Times Australia Bureau and the restaurant critic for Tea Magazine Australia. Born and raised in Australia, she was a restaurant critic in the United States for over a decade in Atlanta and Los Angeles before returning to her hometown of Melbourne in 2017. She is a James Beard Award winner and acts as a solo global critic for Food & Wine magazine, traveling extensively to pick the annual 30 best restaurants in the world. She lives in Melbourne with her husband, teenage son, a parrot named Chobi, and an array of foster cats. I'm really looking forward to it because she's also a very dear friend and we get into a lot of issues beyond just being restaurant critics. I think you'll enjoy it. Again, we're back on Wednesday. Until then, I'm Jennifer Zeman, and you've been listening to The Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network.